Welcome to The Working Therapist with Hayden Bolick, a podcast designed to help you grow more, do more, and be more as a therapist. The Working Therapist is an extension of the Pediatric Developmental Therapy Network. We're glad you've joined us for today's podcast. So here's your host, Hayden Bolick. Welcome, everybody, to this episode of The Working Therapist. I'm Hayden Bullock, your host, and today we have Kirsty Miles, who is with us. She is actually recording this podcast from one of our clinic sites, so you may hear a few little people in the background. A few little people always makes everything better, so that's a good thing. So welcome, Kirsty. Hi. For maybe somebody who's listening for the first time, why don't you introduce yourself again, and then if you've heard lots of podcasts with Kirsty, then this won't be new information to you, but go ahead and introduce yourself, Kirsty. Kirstie Miles. I'm a physical therapist with Pediatric Developmental Therapy on my ninth year with PDT, and I am a team lead for Purple Team, managing several of the contract sites over in the Southern Pines area, including Rayford and the Southern Pines office. Very good. Yep, that's everything you do in a nutshell. <laughs> <laughs> There's a whole lot reading between the lines on that one, but but no need to discuss right here now today. So we'll just move, let's move on. All right, today we're talking about idiopathic toe walkers, correct? Yes. Okay, so in layman's terms, Kirsty, tell us what idiopathic toe walkers means. It means there is no reason for it. Mm. They cannot find a reason why a child is toe walking. Hmm. Does this happen often? We get this diagnosis a lot when it comes on the script from the doctor. However, we're finding that there more oftentimes than not is a reason for the toe walking. Hmm. So there is something, it's just maybe when the doctor sends a referral over, that reason is just not founded yet. Right. Okay, well then, so, but toe walking just means the kids are walking on their toes. Yes. When a child does not contact the ground with their heel during the gait cycle, that is what defines toe walking. Idiopathic, there's no known cause, but we need to be careful to make sure that we're differentiating and excluding any of the other possible reasons that they might be toe walking. Mm. So one of the number one reasons that we find is there's an underlying clonus. Clonus, it's a neurological sign. It's a relay from the brain. And you can test that by doing a quick stretch of the foot in the ankle. And when you have clonus, you see that foot quiver is the best way I can describe it. What they say is significant is four or more beats. Clinically, I think that if you have clonus, it's significant because one beat could trip you up and cause you to trip and fall. So sometimes we'll even mark down like on an evaluation or a finding that there's a catch where we don't necessarily see four plus beats, but we feel like a catch in the foot when we're testing. With clonus, what I often encourage therapists to do is continually every session check for that clonus. Because as you're working on a program with a child that is toe walking, a lot of times they do have loss of range of motion. So lost range of motion could potentially mask any underlying clonus because you don't have enough range to actually elicit that clonus in. Hmm. We find clonus a lot with different genetic conditions. Right. We find clonus for unknown reasons. We've had children that are doing excellent in school, typically developing in every other way, but there's an underlying clonus. Hmm. Oftentimes, though, what we do is go ahead and refer them to neurology to make sure that there's nothing that's getting missed in that finding. Another reason they may walk on their toes is they may have a strength deficit. So toe walking could be a compensatory strategy for if there's core weakness, 
hip weakness, quad weakness, hamstring weakness, dorsiflexion weakness, or foot intrinsics. They may walk on their toes. Sometimes children with low tone or hypotonia may go up onto their toes to lock that midfoot for stability reasons. Uh, So just because you're getting a doctor's order that says idiopathic toe walking, you still want to run through all of your basics that you would with physical therapy. Check any of those. Just a good assessment. Yep. Overall, which is what a good assessment would be. You wouldn't rule anything out or have any assumptions coming in. You would assess each child in every area to make sure you're not missing something. Definitely. So let's talk a little bit about normal and abnormal. So for somebody like me, Kirsty, who I'm not ever going to assess a child as a toe walker, but I certainly see it and I'm thinking, dag, somebody needs to do something about that. Or I'll refer children for physical therapy thinking, hey, he's on his toes (laughs) or she. So talk to me a little bit what's normal versus abnormal so we can kind of give people a, a mental picture. Sure. When a child's learning to walk, they may raise up on their toes, but by 18 months, they have a pretty consistent heel strike. So that the first thing to contact the ground is their heel. If they have prolonged toe walking where they're raising up on their toes, that is considered not to be a normal phase of gait. So anything persisting beyond the age of two and three would be labeled as idiopathic toe walking if there is no other underlying pathology, no clonus low tone, that sort of thing. So sometimes if there is bilateral toe walking, that can occur with things like congenital muscular dystrophy or global developmental delay. Mm. And then sometimes you can have just toe walking on one side, maybe from a trauma Mm. or something. I have seen also in practice where baby stroke in utero, there is a brain bleed that does affect their neurological development where they have clonus, but they only have clonus on the one side. So really only one limb is affected. But when you're walking, it's really hard to walk up just on one toe. So a lot of times they'll mirror what they're doing on the other side and they'll end up being a bilateral toe walker, even though one body side is affected. Gotcha. So have you seen, Kirsty children when um, you're doing a vows, where there really isn't another cause for toe walking? They just are walking on their toes just because? Yes. And that would be the true definition of idiopathic, meaning we just don't know where it's coming from. <laughs> I mean, I've, you know, been out and about and I see lots of kids and stuff, but I've noticed like little kids walking on their toes, like age mm-hmm. two and stuff like that. And they, to me, they don't look like they've got a genetic syndrome or they don't necessarily have a, like a syndrome type look. They're just walking on their toes. So that's the kind of the group of kids we're talking about right now. Just idiopathic. What yep. would cause a child just to walk on their toes? Just, hey, I'm thinking i walk my toes. Well... There is a podiatrist with Southern Health in Cardinia Casey Community Health Services in Australia. Hmm. Her name, I think I'm saying it right, Mm -hmm. Kylie Williams. And she is somebody who's out there suspecting that the gait pattern may not be truly idiopathic. So Uh. she's thinking that there is some underlying mild neurological changes that we don't even yet understand. Oh, So she's doing a lot of different research around this, and one of her studies that she has described is sensitivity to vibration, and she's saying that children that are hypersensitive are going to be up on their toes. So sometimes you're seeing this in your Asperger's syndrome and autism population where they're walking on their toes. Mm. So in her study, she took 30 children. Mm. 
ages four to eight that were non-tow walkers, and she took 30 children that were ages four to eight that were identified as idiopathic tow walkers. They measured the vibration perception threshold in the right toe. And vibration, they said, mimics the everyday input for the brain to sense this fine motor surface changes, and it's also aiding in protection and proprioception. What she found was that children in the idiopathic toe walking group had a significantly lower vibration perception threshold, meaning when their number hit a lower threshold, they responded to it. Wow. Yeah, so they're finding that idiopathic toe walkers may be more sensitive to touch. Hmm. So when they looked at this more globally and testing a larger study of motor skills, they found those with the lower vibration perception threshold also had delayed motor skills and unusual behavioral changes. Right. Huh. So another interesting finding that she found was that Children in the idiopathic toe walking group, their preferred hand was the left hand 33% of the time. In the non-toe walking group, it was 10%, which is in line with population norms. So compared to, you know, a group as a whole, 10% of the population will be left-handed. That's what they found with the study of non-toe walkers. But when they looked at your idiopathic toe walking group, 33% of those children were left-handed. We said earlier in this podcast that Kirsty was one of our clinics recording this. And so we heard one of our little fellows in the background. He didn't sound real happy with his PTOT or speech session. I'm not sure which one, but he didn't sound real happy a second ago. <laughs> he is out there working on rolling with PT, and that is work. <laughs> Bless his little heart. Well, I hope he gets happier or he gets a little break in a minute. <laughs> Bless his little heart. You know, wouldn't it be nice to have permission sometimes to cry like that when you didn't like what things you had to do? I feel that way several times during the course of the day. <laughs> I could just cry <laughs> or, or buzz at somebody in a loud voice just like that. But no, not really. Okay, so let's get back to the study. So what the results basically she was saying is the kids who she had diagnosed as idiopathic toe walkers didn't really like things on the bottom of their feet. They didn't like the feeling. They were more sensitive to touch or in her study vibration. And so because of that, I guess her hypothesis is, that's, or her finding is she's guessing they're walking on their toes. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then also, as a separate correlation, these children who are idiopathic toe walkers were more likely to be left-handed. Yes. And so is she trying to link something there or? She is overall hypothesizing that there's something neurological in the brain Mm -hmm. that is resulting in this idiopathic toe walking. So she's thinking it's not necessarily idiopathic, no known cause, that there is something underlying it. And she's trying to find out what that is. (laughs) Gotcha. Gotcha. I mean, that makes sense because you're saying that there are other reasons for toe walking could be that there is a neurologic reason that the kids are toe walking. But for these little people, there isn't a known reason why, but she's saying that probably there could still be some neurologic underlying cause. Sure. Something, even though it's maybe very, very mild, the toe walking is the only manifestation of the maybe mild neurologic cause. Right. Got it. Okay. And I think one of the important things to take away, too, is that when she looked at the group more globally and Mm -hmm. tested them on larger motor skills, that she found that those with the lower threshold had delayed motor skills and unusual behavior changes. So what we take away from this is it's important, even though a child's coming in for idiopathic toe walking, we have to treat the whole child. Yep. 
That's always the best course of action. Mm-hmm. You can't tweeze these little people out. You just got to take them, you know, hook, line, and sinker. The whole yes. child. There you go. <laughs> you know. Okay, so what's the best treatment strategies? I mean, after you've evaluated and you've you know sort of gotten your plan of care written, then what do you do for treatment strategies? You know, I've had a couple of children come in more recently, and they've gone up to different doctors and already being mentioned is surgery, surgery, surgery. Mm. And obviously we're in a line of work where surgery is not our first option. We practice much more conservatively. So we have to try some other avenues before we go to that route. Not to say that that never happens because there are instances where there might be so severe range of motion loss that that is the option. But first line of defense more often than not is an aggressive stretching program. And there's different ways to stretch a child. They're not going to be ones that'll sit there and tolerate you just manually stretching them. That You're not going to get a whole lot out of that. They'll probably sound like that little fellow in the background if they sit there. And yeah, stretch. yeah. <laughs> that's, that's most likely what's going to happen. Yeah. So there are some different ways to go about that that I've found to be really helpful. Ultimately, it's going to be how you implement that into a home program that the family is going to be able to carry out every single day. Yeah. Because them coming into you one time a week to be stretched, it's just not going to do anything. Right. And that's the reality of what we do. Well, it's got to be functional. It does. Yeah. And applied to regular daily life. Yes. Yeah. And so another avenue is strengthening. A lot of times when children are up on their toes, they have been walking around with their knee locked out in that hyperextension. And so Mm -hmm. when that happens, they're basically hanging on ligaments. They don't have to use any quad muscle to walk. So Mm -hmm. their quads are just incredibly weak. So there's a huge strengthening component that's going to have to go in line with stretching. So you're not only are you stretching out the gastroc and the soleus in the back of the leg, you also have to strengthen your anterior tib, which is in the front of your shin, which is constantly not being used because you're never dorsiflexing your foot or bringing your toes up towards your shin. Hmm. So there's twofold for the leg. And then you have your weak quad. A lot of times too, these children have tight hip flexors. Mm Mm-hmm. So even if you ask them to stand with their heel on the ground, they are like bent forward at the hip. Oh my gosh, they're that tight? Mm-hmm. Wow. So a child that might be that tight, would they be older? Or could you see that in like a two-year-old or a three-year-old? I've seen it in the three-year-old. You're kidding. Wow. No. He was just a chronic, consistent toe walker. And, you know, thankfully his parents were wonderful. They incorporated the home program and he was out of our care within three months. Wow. That's impressive. Which is phenomenal. Yeah. But we did a combination of stretching, strengthening, and bracing, which is another Mm. common avenue that we talk about. What we did with him was a little bit different. We also have to work and we have to kind of juggle and balance what type of insurance a child has and knowing what their insurance will allow them to get as far as bracing. Right. So knowing that and then going for and picking the best avenue to treat them, it does come into play a little bit. And so we wanted to do a brace that would be both a night splint and that he could wear during the day. Right. And working with 
Rich Davis over at Advanced Brace and Limb, we were able to find a really, really good option for him. And the family only had to purchase the one brace. So you need to really have a good orthotist that you're working with is what you're saying. Because it sounds like there's some options and you've got to try, I guess, problem solve, try a couple of different things to see which one's going to be best for each child. So there's not just one size fits all, right? No, (laughs) no. (laughs) American Academy of Orthotists and Uh Prosthetists, Uh at their annual meeting, they suggest treating children with a rigid foot plate rather than an AFO. Hmm. But again, I think that's not going to work for every child. What's the idea behind that? Why would you want to treat with the foot plate? If you have a rigid foot plate, they're not going to be able to flex the toes and get up on their toes as much. So it's going to more gently cue them into coming down on their heel a little bit more. So you still might see them up on their toes a little bit, but it won't be as pronounced as without a rigid foot plate in the bottom of their shoe. They'd have to work hard to get up on their toes, I guess. Exactly. Yeah. But then if you didn't go ahead and start, you know, strengthening like you're talking about and stretching, then I bet you money some of those kids would find a way. They will. They will. You're really talking about a multifaceted treatment approach because so far you talked about strengthening, stretching, and potential bracing. Yes. Yeah. And these are all things to keep in mind. Sometimes with idiopathic toe walking, you don't have as clear cut of a treatment approach. You have, when you're working with toe walking, one of the more accepted treatment strategies is also Botox. We refer up to UNC a lot for children with really tight heel cords, sometimes they'll inject the Botox, which Botox is the botulism toxin, and it will basically, it's toxic to the nerve endings, and it will shut off that muscle, not allowing it to contract. Hmm. And so then the doctor may do a series of serial castings Uh. where they can put that foot in alignment and put the cast on and then they go back in maybe two weeks and recast in a different range so gradually they're gaining more range of motion seen that be very successful a lot of times what i've found is after they do the botox there is an underlying clonus Mm. so then you have to treat or work on that Yes. And it's neurological. It's something that doesn't go away, but it gives them some answers too. like, hey, this is not idiopathic. There's something here. Right. Yeah. Which may open the door to other things or may. Right. Right. So we were talking about Botox. That would be for somebody who's maybe more severe. Yes. And then I would imagine too, Kirstie, when you did that, all of a sudden you did the Botox because it's kind of like one minute the child was up on their toes. The next minute they're flat footed. You know, I mean, don't you have to retrain their gait? You do. You the do. And in the sensory system, because that part of the foot has not contacted the floor. Oh, yeah, definitely. Huh. It's not used to all those textures. And so at our clinics, we have those tactile discs mm-hmm. um, that have all the different textures. Yep. And that's where I start with them. Like we can play different ball games, ball skills, have them bowling, but they're having to stand on the different textures. Sometimes they can't take all of their weight down through their body and stand on the texture. So we might do one foot and then the other, working up to getting both feet on the disc. That's kind of how we gauge the progression and just show measurable progress. That makes sense. Yeah, that's one that I really like. Uh, And then just giving them activities to work on at home. In the summer, it might be, oh, you're going to the beach. Make sure you're getting on the sand. Make sure, you know, you're, has he been out on the grass without his shoes on? Mm -hmm. No, he never has. Okay, well, make sure you get him out there on the grass and practice that a little bit. Even if he's sitting down to put his feet in the grass, because you've got to start somewhere. 
And even just, I can imagine, just even for those kids walking outside barefoot would be a real challenge because even from like concrete to grass to sand to whatever, you know, pine straw, what, you know, we're overcome with pine straw here. So I would think any of that would be just lots of information for their little bodies to deal with and process. Sensory information, yeah. Texture. So then what other treatment options? As far as treatment options, those are kind of the top treatment options. Surgery is obviously the very last option when none of that other stuff works. And so there is some research out there. Obviously, it's very limited, but will there be effects of toe walking? And there was a study by Williams that uh, said that adults with tight gastrocs and soleus resulting from other conditions, not necessarily idiopathic toe walking, they experience more foot pain and a lower quality of life. Mm. So sometimes it's controversial. Well, do you do any intervention for idiopathic toe walking or are they fine? They're functional. They can walk on their toes. Well, it's just the, the manifestations that can come with being a toe walker and how much body weight you're taking through your foot and what that's doing to your joints long term. For those of us who aren't a PT, tell us where we would look for our gastroc and soleus. <laughs> where where <laughs> is your, that going to be? It's your calf. <laughs> oh, gotcha. Okay, got it. So I guess then also hamstring stretches. Yes. Touching your toes. And, and strengthening. Yep. Oh, and strengthening. Yes. Yeah, yeah, that strengthening thing too. Yeah, so the last thing affects the toe walking. Also, I can just imagine, you know, in my speech therapy world, I go there immediately. Just the social like the the kids can't run to keep up with their little friends on the playground and then maybe they don't I guess feels maybe is unstable on steps because wouldn't it be hard to climb up steps or like on the playground on like the little ladder things to get to the top if you're on your toes all the time? Mm-hmm. I, I would think that would be hard. Those are some very functional goals that we look at doing for a child, but a lot of times they don't have the range of motion. You need a certain amount of range of motion to be able to go up and down stairs. And if you don't have that range of motion, you're not going to be able to do it safely or without a rail. <laughs> right, Definitely. I could see that, sure. So I can just think of lots of long-lasting effects. You know, I, but again, I, like I said, I go to my speech-language world. Um, but socially, I can think of a lot of negative effects. But are there others besides just as an adult having you know difficulty with your joints and difficulty with you know tight calves and hamstrings and all that? Yeah, I think especially when we're dealing with children, you know, you're looking at what's happening to the joint, what's going to happen long term. Is there going to be deterioration from putting stresses on the joint and affecting the bone growth Mm. and also just lifelong gait abnormalities and muscle imbalances that are happening because of that. Mm. So if a parent, you know, if they see their child, they're 18 months old and they see their child sort of walking on their toes, then would you recommend them coming in and getting an evaluation or treatment or what would you think? I would say yes, because that way they can be evaluated. You can get a baseline. We can instruct them right from the get-go on range of motion as more of precautionary, make sure that this continues, and you know, in three months, in six months, to come in and be reassessed so that if you're going to pick it up, it's going to be picked up right away and early rather than waiting until you have lost your ability to dorsiflex and your ability mm-hmm. to go up and down the stairs safely. So you're kind of halting that before it becomes a bigger problem, before you need Botox, before surgery is even a question. Right. So then for those little 18-month-old little people that are walking on their toes, that's their normal. So to get down flat-footed would be abnormal to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Which would, it's kind of interesting to think of it that way, you know, because we're all walking around heel-toe, heel-toe. But for those little people, if they've done it their whole life, they don't know any different. 
Mm-hmm. So you want to catch that pattern before it becomes too ingrained. Right. Yeah. And a lot of times at 18 months, their range of motion is not severely limited. Right. Whereas when you get a three and a four-year-old, they've lost range of motion. So right. you're working on getting that range back, getting that strength back. So a lot of an 18-month-old, what you're going to do is sometimes assess their sitting and making sure they're not a W sitter. A lot of times a toe walker if it's truly idiopathic and no known cause, no clonus, they might have some lower tone through the trunk. Often a compensation is W sitting for low tone. When you're W sitting, you are putting your feet in that plantar flex position. So essentially like you're on your toes when you're walking, but they kind of hang behind you in that plantar flex position and you're just kind of perpetuating what's going to be the problem. So crisscross applesauce at that young age, just trying to encourage that and promote that. I usually ask families, what do you want to call it? Do you want to call it crisscross applesauce? Do you want to say fix your feet? Like what verbiage do you want to do? So we're just Mm -hmm. on the same page. Mm -hmm. And that's usually a really good place to start. Well, that kind of leads us to the next set of questions I had. So tell me about some stretching exercises you do in therapy and then also some stretching exercises you would give to a parent or a teacher to go home and do. Yeah, it's very different. Like when you're working with an older child or somebody in the adult world, you can say, okay, you're going to do this. You're going to stand against the wall and you're going to put your foot here and you're going to hold it for 30 seconds and you're going to do that three times. That's just really not the world that we live in. (laughs) Right. So one of the fun ones I do is I let them open up the cabinet, pick out any toy you want. I just need a toy with parts. I don't really care what the toy is. I don't really care what we're going to do with it. (laughs) I just need this distractor. (laughs) And I will take them and put them on their tummy on the ball. And we will roll forward and we will pick up, let's say, a puzzle piece or a ring for a ring stacker. And then we're going to roll back and get our heels all the way down. And I'm going to give some overpressure. While they're trying to put the puzzle piece in or put the ring on and mom's involved because she's helping me do the therapy. I can't do this one without having somebody help me. And then we'll roll back. We'll get another piece. And I can keep that going for like five minutes sometimes, ten minutes. And I'm like, think of all that stretching that we're getting by rolling forward coming back. That's a really, really good one. And that keeps the kids really engaged and involved. And they're doing something fun. It's not just sitting there and ranging and cranking on their foot. Not that we don't do a little bit of that. Right. Well, (laughs) it's functional and it is fun and it's easy. That's easy and simple. Yeah. That's great. That's one of the big ones that I do in therapy. Another one is, again, picking any toy. I think I can speak for most PTs is we can play with just about anything. (laughs) That's why whenever people are like, what kind of toys do you need? I'm like, Anything with parts, that's whatever. Right. That's right. Yeah, yeah, you're all about some parts. Puzzles, ring stackers, anything where you keep adding to. Stickers, whatever. Yep. Okay, tell us your idea. You know, once they pick their part, that design and drill, that is like the best one ever for little boys with parts. I can get them sitting or picking parts up for minutes and minutes on end. But I'll use those, I'll say at home, a small stool, a low stool, about four inches off the ground, a phone book. In the clinics, I use our little stepping stones. Yep. And I'll have them sit on the stepping stone, their butt all the way to the edge, Mm -hmm. and their heels all the way back to the edge of the stepping stone. And so now they're going to lean forward and get a piece or a part or a toy. Their knees bent, so they're really going to be stretching that soleus. Ah, uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But they're just playing. To them, they're just playing, sitting on the whatever. With a design and drill. Yep. Or whatever it is. I know that I'm a huge fan of the design and drill, but I have yep. I do other things with it, but yes. <laughs> 
I just use it as a distractor. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> uh, me too. I use it as a distractor, but I get speech and languagey stuff out of it. But you're right. That's a good toy because you're kind of working on stuff without, but it's still fun. That's. I think that's the the main thing you're talking about. Is well, you're talking about stretching their heel cords and getting them on their uh, heels, but it's just fun. What I'm getting from the therapy is you're getting what you need and getting them to do what you need them to do. And so they can improve and get better, but it's still fun for them because we are dealing with kids and therapy should be fun. And they think they're playing. So, you know, this one little boy that stands out in my mind, he was three and his mom would be like, he asks me every morning, are we going to see Miss Kirstie? (laughs) (laughs) That's off. See, that's a compliment though. That's great. That's a three-year-old compliment. (laughs) They don't say, you look nice today, Miss Kirstie. They're like, yeah, I'm here. (laughs) (laughs) But he had fun. Another thing that I really use a lot of is the Y bikes or the balance bikes. Right. And we'll do heel digs. So, you know, you have to bring your foot towards your shin Mm -hmm. and you're digging your heels. And I'll tell him, oh, heel digs, heel digs, use your heels, use your heels. So he's basically like trying to walk on his heels because ultimately my goal was that he would be able to walk on his heels. Right. Because that would show me that he's got dorsiflexion, he's got quad strength. You know, it's so many different things. And a lot of the activities that I work on, they're hitting a lot of different things. Good. All at once. Yeah. But again, fun. Fun. We're having a race. It's fun, and they're riding a bike, and that's cool. And yeah, what's not fun about that? Well, I mean, it's not fun for us because, I mean, we're racing, and I'm on one of those bikes, and those (laughs) bikes hurt your butt if you're an adult. Yes, they're very little, and your knees are like in your your knees are in your chin and all that stuff. They aren't very large wide bikes. They don't make them for big people. They only make them for little little folk. And see, that's something that a parent could do at home. A wide bike, they could just do hill digs at home with a wide bike, or even a pedal bike. You could take the pedals off. Yep. Do the same thing. Scooters. Scooters. He's got to keep his foot flat on the scooter because Mm -hmm. when he has Mm -hmm. to bend down to put that other foot on the ground, he's going to have to get dorsiflexion. He's going to have to bend his knee and get some quad strengthening. So the scooter activity is great. Yeah. How do you get him to do with both feet? You know, because like when I do a scooter. scooter. Yeah. I mean, I don't do a scooter very often. Yeah, we work on both sides. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I usually am a one same foot scooter person, though I don't scooter Mm -hmm. a lot. But, you know, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, we, we do. We work on both sides. Yeah. I've used that fishing game that we have. Mm-hmm. I take one of our balance beams and we stand on the edge of it and we drop our heels off the back edge. And yep. that's our dock that we're standing on so we can get our fish. Cool. So usually though, a therapy session, what it looks like that I might not have set out, like that might not have been my game. I just kind of have my bag of tricks that I need to do to get that stretch going on. But yeah. really it's whatever the child chooses to play with that day. Cause I know that's, what's going to keep them engaged and interested. And wanting to come back and not coming in and crying and like, Oh, I don't want to do this again. Cause then you're hitting a brick wall before you ever get the therapy started. The name of the game is to get them out. Right. Get them out of therapy. Get them out. Get them all walking on their heels. Kirstie, those are some great ideas. Okay, I'm thinking about also for me. If I see a child walking on their toes, and I'll make a referral to the physical therapist, or you know, I'll tell the parent, "Hey, I think this child needs to see a physical therapist because they're walking on their toes." Or a lot of times, this happens to me if when I'm in a school or a contract site, I will have made the referral to the PT, but the physical therapist hasn't gotten to the child yet. So, is there anything that I can do? You know, I'm not the physical therapist, but I certainly would want to sit the child in a position that would be good to, you know, help stretching and, you know, that kind of thing. So what would you recommend 
to me to help with this situation before the PT could get there or in between sessions? Right off the bat, I would make sure they're not W sitting. That's the big one. If they're doing that, that's one thing to work on because that's going to take a minute. That's not going to happen overnight. That child is used to sitting that way and there could be tightness in the hips going on along with it. So there's many factors. That's one right off the bat. Another, if you like you're talking about being in a developmental day setting or a school or a preschool. If you watch children play that are typically developing, you often see they move a lot and they change activities a lot and they kind of don't sit down long enough to play with any one thing. They kind of hang out in that deep squat and play. Right. You'll find your idiopathic toe walkers, they don't. They don't hang out in that deep squat to play. They sit down to play. They drop into that W because they can't get there because they have the range loss. So encouraging that by if they're sitting on your lap, I know a lot of times when you're working with a small child, right. maybe in speech therapy, you might be doing some activity from behind them where you're kind of engaging in the task and kind of doing some hand over hand, letting them sit in your lap and keeping their feet flat on the floor and having them lean forward to get their pieces. Kind That's of serves like idea. sitting on the phone book, but mm-hmm. it gets them out of the W sit. It also works on if they've got to stand up a little bit, they're getting some quad strengthening in there, mm-hmm. but they're also getting some heel cord range of motion. Mm-hmm. That's really good because, you know, I don't ever let children W sit anyway, but for those little people that are walking on their toes, I do like to know what to do so I can just sort of help, you know, and carry over. I think a lot of times it looks like we're maybe not doing anything, but if you start asking us, there's like legitimate reasons behind everything that's happening. Yeah, 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 yeah. I got y'all's PT number. I got it. I know what's happening there. Like that little fellow that was in the background during this podcast, that <laughs> he, they were working on rolling. They were just trying to work play with that baby. I know how that works. Once you get into it, good. I mean, it all makes sense. But again, I think if a therapy session is really good, then it looks easy. There's not a struggle. You really have a hard time. You're thinking, oh, this is therapy, you know? But really, it, it is therapy. I think the best therapy happens when it looks functional and normal. And when the child's having fun and they're still working, you can tell the child's working. You can tell the therapist is working. It just doesn't look like there's a struggle. Okay, well, that's everything you want to know about toe walking, but we're afraid to ask, right? <laughs> that's what that's what we should rename this podcast. No, I loved it. This is great because I see this happening all the time I, you know, with little people here and there. So I always want to know what to do, but I think this is great. This has been very interesting, Kirsty. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. We mentioned a lot of toys today too. And so if, if you're out there and you want to see any of these toys that Kirsty was talking about, you can check out our website at www.pediatricdt.com and look under therapy and toy resources and you'll see all our catalog of toys that we have online there. And you can see the toys that Kirsty was talking about and then get some other ideas that'll do the same thing, just a different toy. So check that out too. That's a good resource for you. And really, Kirsty, this was awesome. Thank you. Thank you. So you're doing this for a lunch and learn for our staff in a few days and I think they should be mm-hmm. very excited. I'll tell them. Definitely like to show the examples. It's hard to picture it in your mind. So I think when you have a visual of what it's supposed to look like, it makes a little more sense. (laughs) It made a lot of sense to me. I think you did a great job telling about the visual and stuff. I I got it. Good. So thank you again. Thanks to everybody who's listening. And we'll catch you another time on another episode of The Working Therapist. Thanks for joining us for today's edition of The Working Therapist an extension of the Pediatric Developmental Therapy Network. If you would like more information regarding this podcast or would like to get in touch with us for any reason, visit us on the web at www.pediatricdt.com. That's pediatricdt.com. 